You're listening to The Last Breath Podcast, your home for more deeply connecting to your inner being, your higher meaning, and your greater purpose. Because creating peace begins now. I'm your host, Dr. Tej Khalsa, MD. Let us show you how to transform stress management into something beautiful. Liberation, our summer retreat, overcoming overwhelm. Why climb when you can fly? We'll make it all easy. Check out our show notes for tickets. Welcome back. We've been promising you something big this season. A shift. Out of fatigue and into fulfillment. I'm intent on delivering it to you, even though to do so is about to come at great risk to me personally and professionally. You see, today I need to tell you a story I haven't dared breathe one word about. Not to my own parents, my siblings, nor my physician and public health colleagues. Today, I have to be frank. Here we go. Frank was a tall, dark, and handsome man from Cuba. Broad-shouldered and elegant in a tuxedo, always adorned with radiant eyes and a larger-than-life smile for his beautiful wife. In the wedding photos my patient, Frank's wife, shared with me, they looked like Hollywood stars of a bygone era in every photo. They never looked at the camera. They only looked at each other, their faces shining like the sun as they danced on the glossy hardwood floors of the ballroom. Their love exuded a warmth you just wanted to orbit around. My patient was a petite, very pretty woman from the Dominican Republic. Her bronze hair shimmered, softly swept up into a graceful knot. Her large, almond-shaped brown eyes were illuminated with wonder, a wonder that focused on her husband but was so generous it spilled out onto everything in the world around them. I first learned about Frank during lockdown, in the spring of 2020 when I met his wife for a telemedicine consultation over Zoom. I had been doing Zoom visits already for some time before lockdown. Before virtual meeting, I would pause just for a moment and remind myself that I was about to meet a member of my family. The great joy of meeting with Frank's wife was that the connection was effortless. Her presence in my life was so impactful that early in the morning when I looked over the list of patients I had been assigned for the day, if I saw her name, the whole day came easy. Dr. Kalsa, my patient would say, in the subtle cadence of her Dominican-American accent, and then in equally smooth, rich, loving tones, it's so good to see you. We tended to have our appointments in the afternoons, I was always more tired in the afternoons, but whenever I met Frank's wife, I always felt lighter, energized. This happened regardless of the fact that almost everything we talked about was far too heavy for most people to gather into even one utterance. My patient would talk about her husband, Frank, and his illness and current prolonged hospitalization. She would talk about her own health. I knew that caregiving and grief was taking an increasing toll on her body, but this gracious woman took great care not to let her husband see it. She told me that in the middle of the night, if she had to urgently do something for her husband, she would sing as she completed the task, hoping that the melody would release her husband's heart of any guilt or shame. Before lockdown, my patient had been a jet setter. She was also a trailblazer, a woman of color ascending in the world of American finance to manage massive accounts and company investment portfolios. She told me that throughout her life, she had frequently felt like she was stepping into uncharted territory, frequently leaping onto a new and unknown trajectory. At the start of any new venture, Frank had always been there, by her side, cheering her on. 
with complete faith in her ability to succeed. Before Frank became ill, he had been larger than life. My patient told me about the faithful day when they had walked into a cathedral, a particular Catholic cathedral that was revered as a home of miracles. Frank had walked into the holy shrine with his wife, only to never walk out again. Inside the cathedral, he collapsed. I imagine that he must have tried immediately to hoist himself back up to his feet, but in a split-second rush of awareness, he realized he could no longer move his legs or feel anything in his lower body. Frank was eventually carried out of the cathedral, carried through multiple hospitalizations, visits with specialists, batteries of scans, spinal taps, blood tests, the mystery of his spinal cord emergency ascending all the way up to the National Institutes of Health to be contemplated by the country's top scientists. Frank was diagnosed with an exceedingly rare condition. Scientific papers were published on it. But what these respected publications of my profession failed to mention was that when Frank walked into the cathedral, never to be able to walk out of it, he and his wife had made a decision. They decided to embrace what was happening to Frank as a miracle. Frank was now what some might call a disabled person, but Frank and his wife chose not to ascribe to these ableist notions. Instead of seeing what had happened as something being taken away, they chose instead to see what had happened as a miracle. Their family had received a miracle. Before the collapse in the cathedral, Frank had required a kidney transplant. My patient had wholeheartedly offered one of her own. After a successful operation, people would regularly try to heap praise on her for her gift to her husband. Always gracious, she refused the flattery, joking that it was all a plan to benefit her. Frank will never be able to get rid of me now, she would joke. I'm part of him. We were now five months into the pandemic in Minnesota, and Frank was back in hospital again. His body was shutting down, and both he and my patient knew it. My patient continued to devote herself day and night to her husband. Day after day, she stayed by his bedside, stroking his hair, feeding him ice chips, admiring his handsome features, admiring the way the sunlight and shadows would dance across his face and pillow. Then one day we met for a Zoom appointment and she told me something we had both been anticipating. Frank had died. Though we both knew this day was coming, it didn't make it hurt any less. Frank passed away in late July, just a few days after my birthday. On hearing the news, I paused and took a deep breath. Exhaling, I asked my patient how she was doing. She talked about how she was at peace with Frank's transition, that towards the end he had had very little quality of life, lying day after day in the hospital bed. She was grateful he was finally free from suffering. My patient also talked about how much of a light Frank had been on this earth, how so many people at the clinic had come to know him and love him, how he had helped launch a business in town and was known locally as an advocate for the differently abled. She faithfully recited the virtues of her husband and how much he was appreciated by those who knew him. But as I listened to her words, streaming in from my laptop's built-in speakers, grief streamed in too. It poured into my inner space. Perhaps it was because I heard it in the sound of her voice, the way her sentences trailed off into silence, unfinished, the way her voice had lost its lift, the way her tone had lost its luster, there was usually an underlying rhythm and cadence to her sentences like she was singing. But the song was gone now. 
She never told me she was hurting. She just told me she was keeping herself busy. There were funeral arrangements to be made, memorials to figure out. COVID-19 made it all harder. I knew there was close family stretched across the United States in Florida, New York, and the Dominican Republic. But the Dominican was going through another wave of COVID and another lockdown. My patient had a beautiful altar in her home set up with the Virgen de Guadalupe, fresh flowers, a picture of Frank too. She told me she tried to see him in the world each day when she was out walking, to hear him through birdsong or see him in the stretch and soar of a bird's wings. But grief and loss were an unpredictable companion. It had an ever-changing face and form, the blurring of days and nights spent caregiving, the aching finality of death, the relentless paperwork and communiques with insurance companies and hospital business offices that followed. My patient's daughters flew in in those early days to support her. Their presence, the presence of her grandchildren, helped. Yet there was so much she still had to navigate alone. Nights spent in a now-empty bedroom. Days filled with meaningless hassle. Negotiating with insurance companies only too willing to collect premiums but reluctant to give a payout. So it came as no surprise to me that in a follow-up appointment a few weeks later, my patient seemed withdrawn. She spoke in low tones, stuck on the matter of how to cope with her birthday, which was coming up in about a month. She said to me, Dr. Khalsa, I've decided that I don't want to do anything. I'm not going to answer the phone. I'm not going to make plans with anyone. I'm going to stay home. And I want to be alone. I was sitting in a blue armchair in my basement home office, looking squarely into the top center frame where my laptop's webcam was embedded. My patient felt far away, like she was lost at sea, stranded on a desolate island. I did not know how to reach her, other than to keep breathing deeply and to listen even more intently. In listening, a clue could always be found, mapping a way back to one another. As I sunk more deeply into listening, and as she continued to speak about her wish to be completely alone, I felt a presence emerge to my right, as if someone was standing next to me, just outside my peripheral vision. The presence felt loving and familiar. Though I had never met him in the flesh, I knew exactly who it was. Sister. By her flowers. Frank. Frank was here. I felt him standing to the right of the blue armchair for just a few seconds. My patient was continuing to talk to me through my laptop speakers, talking about how she just wanted to start withdrawing from the world. I was trying my best to keep my eyes focused on the web camera and, and stay present with her words, but another conversation was simultaneously happening, and I was searching for a way to reconcile them, as if he could see the way my mind was wrestling with our conversation. The presence surfaced again, for a moment, to my right, but outside my peripheral vision. Frank. Again, he spoke to me through the whispers of my heart. Sister, please buy her flowers. I continued to breathe deeply, listening to the whisper, simultaneously listening to my patient's wishes to be alone. I became restless. What to do? What to do with this whisper? What was I going to do about it? Then I did something I tried my best to avoid doing. I interrupted my patient. I apologized to her for interrupting, explaining that I needed to ask her a question. Is it okay if I ask you something? I asked. My patient paused granting me permission to shift the trajectory of our conversation. What did Frank usually do for you on your birthday? How did he celebrate with you? I asked. Oh, I would wake up and there would always be flowers waiting, and he would find a restaurant and make a booking for us to go later in the day, she said. 
flowers. Mm. Frank always had flowers waiting for her. Mm. Interesting. But my mind still remained resistant to the whispers of my heart. No, my intellect lashed out under the guise of reason. Almost everyone delivers flowers to their loved ones on their birthdays. This is just something I've drummed up. Purely coincidence. As if privy to my innermost thoughts, again the presence surfaced to my right. Again the whisper of my heart. Sister, please buy her flowers. There was just no denying him this third time. He was very much real, very much present. Okay, Frank, I will. I will buy her flowers, I said silently, still looking into the laptop webcam, still trying to keep the semblance of a doctor's telemedicine appointment going. Thank you, sister, he whispered back through my heart, my own eyes filled with tears. Here I was, sitting in my blue armchair, bought for a bargain at Habitat for Humanity, in my home office, in the basement of a little cottage in the cornfields of southeastern Minnesota. A man I had never met, a man who had passed away only a few weeks prior, had somehow crossed time and space to meet me here by this chair and honor me with three words. Thank you, sister. With these three words, we had sealed the deal. For the first time in my life, the first time that I was aware of at least, I had entered into a sacred contract with someone who was dead, but very much alive. As our appointment came to a close, I said to my patient, let's schedule a time to meet the day after your birthday if that's okay. We can see how you're doing. Plus, I have something I will need to tell you about, but it has to wait until after your birthday. My patient agreed. Our appointment was the last one of the day. I folded up my laptop. I pushed my armchair back with my legs, pausing for a moment to look about my office, as if the tan-colored carpet and walls or the honey-colored oak in the crown molding around the ceiling might offer clues on how Frank had found me. There was just one window in this basement room from which the afternoon light was streaming in. I stared at the flecks of dust floating in the basement air, illuminated by the light from the window. Did Frank come in through the window? Through the sun? I mused. I gave up trying to figure it out and bounded up the stairs to join my family for dinner in our kitchen. I paused in the curved archway, the threshold into our kitchen. My husband was in the kitchen with our 10-month-old, handing him a squeezable packet of applesauce. I needed to talk to my husband about this new errand, buying a large bouquet of flowers. While my husband was always easygoing about our purchases, I still liked to give him the heads up if I was going to buy something big, something extra, something out of the ordinary. Honey... Something just happened, something that has never happened to me before, I said to my husband. Oh yeah? My husband asked with his usual cool. He emptied a frozen cheese pizza out of a cardboard box onto a baking tray. I took a deep breath. I just had my patient's husband visit me in the basement during a Zoom call with my patient. He transitioned a few weeks ago. His wife's birthday is coming up. He asked me to buy her some flowers. Honey, I told him I'll do it. So I'm going to have to order a large bouquet, okay? Without missing a beat, my husband opened the oven door and put the pizza in the oven. Sure, sweetie. I exhaled. Thank you for thinking I'm not crazy, I said out loud. My husband turned to me. Sweetie, I've never thought that about you. I know how much you love your patients. If you feel called to do this, I support you. A couple of weeks passed. One Saturday morning, I was chasing my 10-month-old around the top floor of our house in one of his favorite games. Let's scoot away from Mama when she wants to change my diaper. It was a busy Saturday morning with lots to do. 
My husband and I have no family in the town we lived in. We did everything for our kids, just the two of us together. Overwhelmed, I paused for a moment at the landing at the top of the stairs and took a deep breath. I remembered the flowers. I thought to myself, how am I going to remember to buy these flowers when I can't even remember to pay bills on time? My husband paid all the bills and he ran almost all our errands while I watched the kids. As I stood there with a fresh diaper and the packet of wipes, I became doubtful that I could pull off the flower delivery. I wondered again if I had imagined the whole thing. And just like that, I felt the same presence emerge beside me, to my right, just out of my view. And again, the whisper within. The whisper of my heart speaking. Sister, please buy her flowers. Frank. Frank had come back. Okay, Frank, I'll schedule it into my cell phone calendar so I don't forget, I said to him silently. Thank you, sister, came the response. Frank's thank you took away my overwhelm. I returned to chasing my baby, captured him with a big hug and kiss, and changed his diaper while we both giggled. A few weeks later, a Monday in September, I happened to be off work looking after the kids. The three of us were in the playroom. Picking up a toy, it dawned on me. My patient's birthday was tomorrow. I needed to get flowers. Just then my cell phone rang. It was my husband. Honey, I'm just wrapping up at the bank. I was going to head home, but it occurred to me. Don't we need to buy flowers for your patient? Yes, yes we do, I replied. Can you please go to the shop where you usually buy me roses and just FaceTime me when you get there? My husband agreed. He would go to his usual shop. When he arrived, he called me again through FaceTime, reversing the camera so I could see the dozens and dozens of roses in a wide assortment of colors. I scanned the blooms, wondering what my patient might like. I had to rely solely on what felt right. What felt right? What felt right? Hmm, let me see. I stared intently at the colors on the screen. Rich hues of orange and red caught my eye. Autumnal colors. They felt just right. Ah, I said excited. Honey, what about the oranges and the reds? Can you buy four dozen of them, please? The oranges and the reds? My husband searched through the buckets of orange and reds, selecting the finest 48 blooms he could, double-checking for my approval before he headed to the till. Thank you, honey, I said. No problem, sweetie. I'm just glad I found flowers you like, he replied. Soon he was home. The four dozen roses made for a truly grand bouquet, we had to find a big paint bucket in our garage and fill it with gallons of water to keep the flowers hydrated and fresh. The whole family was now in on Frank's request. Our children circled the paint bucket with the flowers, ooing and aahing at their beauty. I was excited that they'd loved them and that they were impressed. It felt like a good sign that my patient would love them too. Each time my 11-month-old reached for a bloom to stroke the petals, I gently pulled him away. No touching, please, I said, hugging him close. I had to make sure the mission was accomplished. The next morning, I woke up at 5.30 a.m. My first thought was of the flowers. I had to deliver the flowers. I knew Frank would have the roses ready for his wife by the time she woke up. But I had to nurse the baby and help get the elders ready for school, and I also like to get to work 40 minutes early just to create more spaciousness and ease before diving into a packed day in clinic. I'm sorry, Frank. I said to myself silently, I won't be able to deliver these flowers for you until lunchtime. I got myself and the children ready, found a little blank note card and wrote down three simple words in the center of the card. Frank sent these. That was all I wrote. 
I did not sign my name. I put the card in an envelope and tucked it in between a few blooms. Then I carried the bucket with the four dozen roses out to the car, tucking them securely into the floor of the passenger seat. I ran back into the house and grabbed my work handbag. I put my black doctor's bag on the passenger seat and took off. As I drove to work, I occasionally stretched my right arm out, trying to block my handbag from falling onto the flowers when I made a turn. Nothing was going to get in the way of delivering this bouquet. That morning in clinic was just like any other. Busy. Normally I became totally consumed by the needs of whoever or whatever was in front of me, but today was different. While I was able to focus entirely on a patient during an appointment, the way I normally did, as soon as the appointment was done and I stepped out of the exam room into the hallway, the need to deliver the flowers returned with pressing urgency to the forefront of my mind. I felt nervous and excited, like a leading actress waiting behind a red velvet curtain, hopeful to deliver a performance that would move the hearts and minds of the audience. I wrapped up the morning in record time, just before noon. This was a relief to be running on time. It meant I had a good hour to deliver the flowers, head home, squeeze in a feed with our 11-month-old before my afternoon set of telemedicine appointments in our basement. The only thing left to do before I could leave the clinic was look up my patient's home address, and then I would be on my way. I knew we had planned to meet the following day, so I looked up the next day's list and double-clicked on her name to open up her chart. After clicking several times, I found my way to the demographics tab that was supposed to contain her address information. Florida. Here I was trying to deliver flowers to my patient in her apartment in Rochester, Minnesota, and I only had an address for her Florida home. I shifted my weight in my swivel chair. What to do? What to do? Failure was not an option. Not now. Not this late. I had to come through with the delivery. I only had a Florida address. I needed a Minnesota address. I paused. I took a breath. And then I called my patient's cell. I got voicemail. Then I remembered her words from that faithful summer appointment when she talked about her birthday. Dr. Kalsa, I've decided that I don't want to do anything. I'm not going to answer the phone. I'm not going to make plans with anyone. I just want to be alone. Darn it, I thought. She'd already made a decision not to answer, but I still had to deliver the flowers. There had to be a way. I knew there was a business in town that Frank had helped start. I looked up the address and wrote it down. But even as I scribbled down the address, I felt the plan derailing. Even if I delivered the flowers to whoever was working at their business that day, how could I guarantee they would get to my patient? And more importantly, how could I ensure that the real message behind them, that Frank had sent them, would be successfully delivered and understood. I took a deep breath. And I prayed. Alone in the privacy of my office, I whispered out loud into the quiet around me. Frank, I'm doing all of this just to fulfill your wish. I've come this far. You managed to reach me to make this request. Now I need you to reach me again and give me the address to you and your wife's apartment. I only have your Florida address. I need your Minnesota address. I waited. But there was no presence to my right. No whispers in my heart. Nothing. But silence. Well, not quite nothing. In the quiet... A thought emerged and came to the forefront of my mind. 
what if I tried calling my patient again, just one more time? If that didn't work, I would resort to plan B, the business delivery. I picked up my office phone again and dialed my patient's number. It rang again. Hello? My patient answered. I tried to contain my excitement, explaining it was me, Dr. Kalsa from the clinic. I just have something I need to drop off for you for your birthday. I'll explain more at our appointment tomorrow, but for now, can I please have your address? The clinic only has your Florida address. My patient told me that it was kind of me to think of her. I explained that the truth was I had been tasked with doing something for her, but that I would explain it all when I arrived. She gave me her address, describing the apartment complex and where it was in relationship to the clinic buildings. I Google mapped it on my cell phone and realized I could get there very quickly and still make it home for my afternoon appointments. I scribbled down the address along with her cell phone so I could call her when I arrived. I ran to my car and got in quickly. It was noon, the height of traffic around the clinic. Cars were circling the clinic towers and I had to swerve in and out of different side roads to work around the gridlock and make it to my patient's apartment. As I cut through the traffic, I wondered what corporate policy I was violating just to deliver these flowers to my patient. If so, so be it. The flower delivery was far more important. I was getting more nervous by the minute. First, there was the matter of the rush to get home. I needed enough time to deliver the flowers, explain things to my patient, then drive home, feed my child, and continue seeing patients. There wasn't going to be enough time for me to eat my lunch. But more than the worry about the time, there was the anticipation. How is all of this going to go down? Would I really be able to come through for Frank? Would my patient be able to understand and receive his message? I found the block the apartment building was on and quickly swerved off the main road into the side street it was on, rocking the paint bucket with its 48 flowers and gallons of water. The card I had tucked in between a flu blooms fell to the ground and water spilled out onto the floor of the car, soaking the card along with the floor mats. I parked in front of a sapling, right in front of the path leading up to the lobby of the apartment complex. There was a sign next to the sapling indicating parking was forbidden. It was a drop-off area only. It's okay, I thought. I'm only going to be five minutes. I got out, ran around to the passenger side, reached with both arms for the bouquet, and noticed the envelope on the floor mat, soaking wet. I had an odd feeling come over me that it was supposed to be that way. I will keep the card, I decided to myself. It will be my reminder that this actually happened, so I can't talk myself into denying what happened. Standing on the sidewalk, I called my patient on my cell phone like we had agreed to let her know I was approaching the lobby doors. She answered my call, letting me know that Frank's former caregiver would be coming down to greet me. A lady with kind eyes, brown skin, brown hair, a white mask, came to the glass doors at the entrance and opened them for me. We both smiled with our eyes at one another, both in our masks, feeling a little uncertain. She quickly gestured to the elevator to take me up, and I thanked her. Inside the elevator, the bouquet took up more room than we did. Frank's caregiver gently gestured to the giant bouquet, mentioning how kind it was to buy my patient such beautiful flowers. Oh no, they're not for me, I told the kind lady, looking her in the eyes. Frank asked me to deliver these flowers. I need her to know these are from Frank. The kind-eyed lady nodded. The elevator doors opened onto an empty carpeted hallway. She stepped out and gestured for me to follow. It occurred to me, as we walked down the hallway, that I had never met my patient in person. And now I was about to show up at her front door with these flowers on behalf of her deceased husband. I became nervous. 
The kind-eyed lady opened the door. I saw my patient Frank's wife a few feet ahead. She had on an orange shirt in a deep, rich autumnal hue, red lipstick. She matched the flowers. I stepped forward, lifting up the 48 red and orange stems to her. Dr. Kalsa, these are so beautiful, she exclaimed, embracing the flowers, her eyes bright, searching mine with wonder. I refused the thanks. These flowers are from Frank. He visited me during one of our appointments, and he asked me to buy you flowers. Do you remember that time in our appointment? When you were talking about your birthday and how you wanted to be alone, and I interrupted you, I asked you what he normally did on your birthday. The reason I asked was because Frank was visiting me at that same moment, asking me to buy you flowers. He asked me many times, and I promised him I would do it. My patient continued to marvel at the large bouquet of four dozen roses. Her eyes were beaming with that same expression she had in her wedding photos. The kind-eyed lady was crying. I started to step away. I have to run home and see patients, I told them both. Both ladies nodded. Thank you, I called out to my patient, waving. I turned to the kind-eyed lady, thanking her and, and telling her I would be able to make my own way back down into my car. Down on the street, I opened the passenger door to my car, picked up the big paint bucket, and poured out the gallons of water into the roots of the sapling between my car and the sidewalk. I think it was a cherry tree. As I emptied the paint bucket of water into the young tree's roots, immense relief flooded my mind and heart. It was finally done. Mission accomplished. I could relax. I put the empty bucket back into the car and picked the soggy card off the ground. It would be my memento for this momentous occasion. I tucked the wet card into my handbag, which was sitting on the passenger seat. I ran around and quickly hopped into the driver's seat. I checked the clock. Plenty of time still left to get home and feed the little one. My cell phone rang again. I recognized my patient's number. Hello? Dr. Kalsa, can you please come back to the lobby? Could I please just have a picture with you here and the flowers, if you have a few minutes to spare? I said yes, of course. I hopped out again and bounded up to the glass doors. The kind-eyed lady opened them up again for me. My patient was standing in the center of the lobby. I'm sorry, Dr. Kalsa. I just need a picture so I can remember this is real, that this happened, and so that other people will believe me. Can we stand together, please, with the flowers? I hadn't been in the habit of standing close to anyone since the pandemic had started, unless I was physically examining a patient. It felt a little strange at first, standing side by side. It was September 2020. We all had our masks on. But as the kind-eyed lady stepped back a few feet from us, lifting her cell phone to take some pictures, we both agreed, my patient and I, to take our masks off just for a minute for the sake of this special moment. We gingerly put one arm around each other and looked at the kind-eyed lady in the camera, both of us smiling and laughing. Now that I had fulfilled my responsibility, I felt more relaxed. I felt like an actress who had delivered a winning performance and could now breathe and finally receive applause from an appreciative audience. Once we felt like we had enough pictures, we said our thank yous and goodbyes to each other again. A year later, my patient sent a message to the clinic's administration. 
telling them she thought I was the best of the best, helping her through the loss of her husband, and that she couldn't have done it without me. She also texted me a message, saying that before her birthday she had started to withdraw from the world, isolating herself in her grief. She told me that her mind had started to waver in doubt. In the still of the night, she doubted Frank's love for her, and it made her doubt everything. She doubted herself, she doubted a life and future without him, but she said that Frank's flowers had been the confirmation she needed that just because he had died, it didn't mean he had left her side. The flowers allowed her faith in their love to bloom once more, and their commitment to celebrating life together to endure, to endure even beyond the last breath. I want to thank you for trusting me enough to stay with me to the end. I've taken you into uncharted territory for the Last Breath podcast, beyond the last breath. Thank you for letting me take you into this undefined space. I leave it to you to reconcile the story with your own heart and mind. To my patient and to Frank's family, his daughters and grandchildren, thank you for letting me pay tribute to him, to pay tribute to the impact he had on my life. Thank you for allowing the story to be shared in the hopes that someone with a grieving heart may hear it and find comfort. I have one more person to thank. Frank. You taught me that if we are ever going to heal ourselves and transform this world, we have to have courage. The courage to act, to act on the whispers of the heart, and to break down all the walls necessary to do it. You taught me that when we act on the whispers of our heart, joy follows, and our collective rehumanization, our collective fulfillment, blossoms forth. Thank you, Frank. The Last Breath Podcast is written and hosted by me, Dr. Teshkalsa, MD. The podcast theme song is written and performed by me. I'm a physician and educational consultant to the World Health Organization. The views expressed on this podcast represent my views only, specifically my own mission of connecting stress management, resilience, and well-being to our collective secret longing for rehumanization and liberation. The Last Breath Podcast is a free public service offered up to our one human family. Special thanks to Diana Williams and David Stenhouse of DDG. Special thanks to Makia Moody of Kairos and Heart Consulting. Special thanks to Avtar Singh Khalsa, whose song Freedom is featured on our season finale episode. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical evaluation or treatment. Our summer retreat is available now. Tickets are limited, so get yours today. Visit our show notes for details.